Hey people, this is not a normal episode of Made for Love. It's just a bunch of bonus material related specifically to depression as a follow-up to the episode on love and mental illness. It features Dr. Erin Cariotti from the UC Irvine School of Medicine. The first thing we're talking about is the difference between depression and spiritual desolation. The spiritual desolation can involve a feeling, especially when one is trying to pray or when one is receiving the sacraments frequently, this sense that God is distant or that I don't feel God's presence in my life. People can struggle with thoughts that perhaps I've veered off the road spiritually or I'm not moving toward greater union with God or I'm not growing in the virtues in the way that I ought to be. And this could lead to thoughts and feelings that in many ways might mirror the kinds of thoughts and feelings a person may experience when they are depressed. But there's also, I think, some important differences between a problem like spiritual desolation, which is best handled through good spiritual direction and perseverance in prayer, and a problem like depression, which may also require clinical intervention or treatment from a physician or a psychiatrist or a therapist. People with spiritual desolation tend not to develop the kinds of self-loathing or feelings of total worthlessness that people with depression experience. Suicidal ideation would be rare in someone who's experiencing spiritual desolation. And the physical symptoms of depression are likely not going to be present with spiritual desolation or other spiritual states like what St. John of the Cross describes as a dark night of the soul. So by physical symptoms, I mean the low energy, the feeling like I can't get out of bed in the morning, changes in appetite, changes in weight, changes in my sleep-wake cycle. Those things are going to be more characteristic of depression than they would a purely or a more specifically spiritual state. Next is the difference between depression and guilt. It's important to distinguish depression from things like guilt because we don't want to misinterpret depression as a defect of character or as simply as a lack of virtue. Likewise, if we're struggling with a particular defect of character or we need to grow in a particular virtue, we don't want to psychologize it or pathologize it or medicalize it in such a way that we think, gee, you know, is going to fix this problem. So let's start with the issue of guilt. A good confessor, a good spiritual director can help a person distinguish between appropriate guilt and inappropriate or excessive or exaggerated guilt, a kind of psychological scrupulosity that may be burdening a person with a sense of shame or guilt for things that are are trivial. So I recall a patient with depression and obsessive compulsive disorder, OCD, who would have feelings that she committed a mortal sin if she ran a yellow light or if she realized when she got home that the person at the grocery store had given her 50 cents extra in change and she would worry about uh, whether she had stolen from the grocery store because of an inadvertent mistake like that. So guilt is a normal emotion that we ought to feel when we do something wrong. In this way, it's analogous to the feeling of pain. If I touch a hot stove, pain is a normal response that alerts my body that this is dangerous and I need to pull my hand away so that it doesn't, it doesn't get damaged. 
Guilt is also a normal response of our conscience. A person who doesn't feel any guilt is a very sick individual. They're what psychiatrists would consider a sociopath, someone with antisocial personality disorder or psychopathy is characterized by this total absence of guilt, even when they, let's say, commit a heinous crime. So guilt is a good thing if it's functioning properly, just like pain is a good thing if it's functioning properly. What can happen with depression, though, is that a person can get an overwhelming sense of guilt for things that objectively are not sinful or can feel that they've committed an unforgivable sin when they've committed only a minor fault or an inadvertent mistake. And in that respect, guilt is like a pain syndrome that's spun out of control. So if I'm experiencing pain for no good reason, then I probably need to go seek medical attention and, and get treatment for that pain because this is pain that's not telling me to pull my hand away from a hot stove. This is pain that, that is disconnected from any signal that would help me to function better. And so excessive guilt or ruminations or self-loathing that objectively is in excess of any wrong that I've committed or it, in some cases is totally detached from any wrong that I've committed is very often a sign that a person may be experiencing depression or a related anxiety disorder like obsessive compulsive disorder. And the treatment for that is with a good confessor or good spiritual direction working hand-in-hand hand with a good therapist trying to help the person distinguish between appropriate guilt for objective wrongs that I've committed that should lead me to confession and repentance versus excessive or inappropriate guilt that needs to be treated with cognitive therapy or, or other psychological interventions. And also, the difference between depression and sloth. The issue of sloth, or what some of the church fathers called the sin of achadia, a kind of spiritual lukewarmness or spiritual laziness, is also important to distinguish from depression. And this would involve a lack of energy, a lack of motivation in regards to things relating to my spiritual life. So I know I'm supposed to pray today, or you know, if I'm a priest, I know I'm I ought to uh, use this time now in the evening to pray the, the divine office. But I'm going to play video games or I'm going to watch TV instead. This is a kind of laziness, lukewarmness, or sometimes even aversion to the things of God that is potentially a moral fault and can undermine my spiritual growth and development. This would be distinct from depression in that in the other areas of the person's life, they may have plenty of energy, right? They may have plenty of energy to, to play basketball or do things that they enjoy, even if they're neglecting their prayer. They may feel outside of the periods that are set aside for prayer or celebration or reception of the sacraments. Their emotional state may be positive. They may be continuing to function well. They may be feeling good in other areas of their life. That would be distinct from depression, where the low energy, the lack of motivation, the inability to enjoy things is going to affect all aspects of their life. It's going to be a sort of global phenomenon that impacts not just their prayer or specific spiritual practices, but that impacts virtually everything that they're trying to do, their work life, their leisure time, their social relationships. When you start seeing these kinds of things creep into 
one's life as a whole, you have to start thinking maybe this is more of a psychological problem than just a specifically spiritual issue that's impacting my spiritual life itself. So what are the benefits of psychotherapy? And what types of therapy are there? Psychotherapy has certainly been shown useful in the treatment of depression. There are different psychotherapeutic approaches. Cognitive therapy tends to look at the patterns of thinking that influence and shape our emotions and behaviors. So it focuses especially on changing patterns of unrealistic or distorted or automatic negative thinking. Behavioral therapy, as the name suggests, looks at the things that we may be avoiding due to depression or anxiety and gives us concrete ways to try to tackle those things. One of the things that can happen with depression behaviorally is that people sort of become phobic of or afraid of expending too much energy. They feel like they have no gas left in the tank, and they feel like, well, I need to conserve what little energy I have, so I'm just going to crawl back into bed. And that actually just reinforces the cycle of low energy and anhedonia and low motivation. And really what the person in that state needs to do is is to expend energy in order to regain energy. So we know that exercise is actually beneficial, especially for mild to moderate depression. That routine exercise five days a week, 30 minutes at a time, can be as effective for mild to moderate depression as antidepressive medications. But of course, when you're in a depressed state, it's very hard to motivate yourself to do the the exercise that would be required to get a really therapeutic benefit. So a behavioral therapist can work with you on overcoming that sort of addiction to withdrawal or that phobia of expending energy and help you build up to the point where you can engage in the level of physical activities that would be that would be therapeutic. So that would be a behavioral approach. There are other approaches that look at the person's prior history. Very often people with depression have a history of early childhood loss or trauma that they need to they need to work through and process in what's known as depth therapy or psychodynamic therapy. And then there's a form of therapy that's been proven helpful for depression called interpersonal therapy, which looks at not the person's thoughts or behaviors or their own sort of personal psychological or developmental history, but looks at their current relationships and examines the ways in which those relationships may be impacting their, their mood and tries to give the person ways to improve and strengthen their relationships, their social skills, and so forth. So there's a lot of different psychotherapeutic approaches that have been shown to be helpful for depression that are perfectly consistent with Catholic faith and morals. And in an ideal situation, a person could receive one of these or several of these kinds of therapies from a trained psychologist or psychiatrist or other clinical therapist and also receive spiritual direction from someone in the church, a a trained layperson or a priest. Also in the ideal situation, those two people, the uh, psychotherapist and the spiritual director, could work together and collaborate and, with the patient's permission, talk to one another about how to most effectively help the person in these various aspects and areas of their life. Finally, if you're a Catholic and you want to find a therapist who respects your religious beliefs, How do you go about doing that? They could, first of all, go to an initial evaluation 
and see if unprompted the psychotherapist asks them about their spirituality and religion or their spiritual and religious convictions. Good psychotherapists should be trained as part of what we call the social or the developmental part of the history. They should be trained to ask these sorts of questions. So I think if a therapist unprompted asks the patient about that and appears willing and interested in talking to the patient about that, that's a good sign. If that doesn't happen in the initial visit, toward the end of the visit, the patient could ask the therapist, how important do you think it is or do you think it's important to talk to patients about their spiritual and religious convictions and, um, and see what the therapist says, see what kinds of questions they may ask in that regard, how interested and engaged they seem with hearing about that aspect of the, the patient's life. And the patient could also suggest a few test cases about what do you think about this or that moral or religious conviction that I'm, that I'm trying to live. For example, do you think it's a good idea for me to continue trying to pray or read the scriptures every day? Do you think it's a good idea for me to continue going to Mass on Sundays or, or more frequently during the week? What do you think about that? And I think from the therapist's responses to these, that the patient should get a pretty good sense of whether or not they value the patient's religious life as a potential asset in strengthening the patient and helping the patient to cope with or recover from the uh, episode of depression or anxiety or whatever they're being treated for. And also, if the therapist responds to the patient's religious or moral convictions in a way that suggests a lack of regard or lack of respect, that's probably a sign that this is a person who is not going to really sort of understand me at the deepest level and it it might be better for me to go try out another therapist. So it may take a couple of visits with two or three therapists before you find the person who you feel is the right fit for you. But basic sense of how they respond when you try to or when you want to talk about those aspects of your life, I think will give you the kind of clues you need to discern whether or not this person is a good fit. They may or may not share those convictions. I've had a lot of success referring patients to a colleague who's a Jewish psychiatrist, but who understands that religion and spirituality is a central aspect of many people's lives and who has some facility in exploring that area of the patient's life and who generally has a positive respect and regard for spiritual and, and religious practices. A person like that who's also a skilled therapist can be a really excellent resource, even if they don't happen to share one's spiritual or religious convictions completely. That's it for this bonus material. Thanks for listening.